All right, ghouls, ghosts, and goblins, it's time to do The Conjuring 2. So today we're going to talk about the Enfield Poltergeist case itself. Of course, we're going to talk about what I thought about the movie. Then we'll get into more about the lawsuits that we started talking about last week. And then we will finish with some pretty terrible allegations against Ed Warren that came out of those lawsuits. So let's get into it. So the Enfield Poltergeist is a story that happened in England, an event, I guess, that happened in England to a woman named Peggy Hodgson. She called the police in late August of 1977 because furniture was moving about her house on its own and children heard knocking on the walls. A police constable came. She said she saw a chair wobble and slide, but could not determine the cause of the events. So for the next 18 months, claims of haunting poltergeist would escalate. There were said to be disembodied voices. There were loud noises and toys thrown about and chairs overturned, leading up to the most outlandish claim that the children were levitating. So it's... It's kind of crazy. We get a ton of paranormal investigators. The Society for Psychical Research comes in. We have members from the Committee for Skeptical Inquiry comes in. It's just like a whole deal. And so it's also featured in British newspapers and on television. And you can actually watch one of the scenes from the movie where she's being interviewed. You can actually watch that interview with Janet. It's just wild. The 70s must have been wild. Because <laughs> it's just like, okay. The Daily Mail got into it until they just stopped reporting in 1979. Paranormal investigations will start with them. Because even the paranormal investigators... And that, like, community has pretty much decided that this was a hoax. So Maurice Gross and Guy Leon Playfair reported curious whistling and barking noises coming from Janet's general direction. They are both members of the Society for Psychical Research. Playfair wrote a book called This House is Haunted, The True Story of a Poltergeist that came out in 1980. He believes the haunting was genuine, and that there was a quote-unquote entity to blame for the Enfield disturbances. He often doubted the veracity of the children, and he wondered if they were blaming trips and exaggerating, but he still believed that the poltergeist activity was fake. Maureen Gross also thought that the children were just playing tricks on him, but thought that there could also be, like, truth to what they were saying. The Warrens didn't show up until 1987, which is like at the tail end of what's going on with this story. Unlike in the movie where they are, they are right in the thick of it with Maurice Gross. They think that it is supernatural in nature. They think everything's supernatural in nature. So Janet is the one that people call into question the most about her claims because they caught her on camera bending spoons and attempting to bend an iron bar. Maurice Gross had also observed Janet like hiding his tape recorder and banging things on 
the ceiling. So Playfair also brings up the point that Janet had a voice called Bill that came out. It had a habit of suddenly changing topics, and that was a habit that Janet also had. If you look at this, other paranormal investigators come in and think like, well, I think it's obvious she's doing ventriloquism. It's clear she's acting out. Janet admitted that 2% of what she did was fake. She says 98% of it was real. 2% was fake. The other thing is, is that people came in and listened to the tapes that he made of her being the quote-unquote conduit of the voice bill. And like other people think that people who are like voice actors and ventriloquists think that it was a just like a simple voice trick that it wasn't out of the realm of possibility that a teenage girl could do and there's a picture of the girls quote-unquote levitating which just looks like a child jumping on a bed if we're being honest about it and like Janet was a school sports champion so it's like very very possible she was just doing like some kind of gymnastics on her bed just jumping up and down and they caught the camera at the right time. I also like that the skeptic Joe Nichols straight up calls out Ed Warren saying that he was notorious for exaggerating and even making up instances in such cases often transforming a case of haunting into a demonic possession and like absolutely right and that's what we do in this movie right it can't we think it's going to be a haunting and then it's oops all demons i think they do a very good job with the demons in this movie i'm less fond of the crooked man than i am of valak i really like valak i think they're a strong movie monster and i enjoyed the nun which we'll talk about later this week this isn't the only thing that was made about this case there was a mockumentary that came out in 1992 that people are just like incensed about there was a documentary on channel four in england there's a television series in england about it and then the conjuring too bbc radio also did a reunion of all the people involved with the case which is a wild listen so yeah i think like it's interesting that this case they market it as the most investigated case of paranormal activity in history and that's true it's just that both the skeptics and the paranormal investigators for the most part believe that it didn't actually happen and that it was a hoax so you probably can't say that in the promotional material of your movie based on a true story horror movie but like that's that's where we're at in the realm of reality so now we're going to move into the realm of talking about the conjuring the movie i like the conjuring 2 more than i like the conjuring 1 i think the conjuring 1 is about 20 minutes too long and very slowly paced which i don't usually mind i usually like slow burn especially in horror movies I mean, I think if you're listening to this and have listened to me talk about how much I like the power, you have to be like, how, what? You you like that movie and it's a very slow burn. I think it's couple, coupled with the fact of the visual color palette of the first Conjuring is very beige. It's like very warm toned and beige and black and white. And we get pops of red in like the basement when we see the blood on a uh, parent's face and other like pops of color throughout the movie. But the, just the dynamic 
very cold and dark blues and the colder tone and like them not being afraid to have like the bright red nightgown just feels like there's more color in this world and I enjoy that about this movie. I think the visuals of the world benefit from the more saturated and bright colors we see against the dark things. I think they do also a really good job with story, Ed and Lorraine, which again, like, I'm not a fan of real life Ed and Lorraine. I explained part of my reasoning last week in the episode, and I will explain more later. And it really sucks because I enjoy how much movie Ed and Lorraine are like cute and romantic. There's like an actual like romantic plot in a movie that isn't just tragic, right? Like anytime there's like love in a horror movie, it tends to be like tragic, right? Like one of them ends up dying. One of them isn't real. Like there's all kinds of reasons love goes bad in horror movies. And so like it's refreshing in that way that you actually get to see like a couple who is a team, who is supportive of each other. And they do something I really like in that in the first Conjuring movie, it's Lorraine who is pushing herself and pushing and pushing and pushing and almost to the verge of being out of control, right? Like she's willing to do whatever it takes, no matter the cost, even if it's her or her soul to help these people. And Ed is like the one who is terrified and he's the one who has to save her. And in The Conjuring 2, it's reversed. We see Ed get we have to save these people. It doesn't matter what vision you've seen. And he pushes himself to the point where he almost dies. And she's the one who has to save him. So I like that it isn't always that Lorraine is seen as a damsel in distress that Ed has to save. That she's also just as powerful and can save Ed when he needed to be saved. So all of that is like great. I Again, I really enjoy and love the characters of Ed and Lorraine Warren, but they don't mirror the people in real life of the accounts that we get about the people who lived. I constantly can't stop thinking about when watching all these movies, how it does this whole universe a disservice to use Ed and Lorraine's name, to just use the real names. These movies are so powerful and the characterizations are so great that I don't think they actually are drawing off of any kind of love for Ed and Lorraine. I know that there are people in the horror community who are into to paranormal investigation, and that is a whole thing that people are into, and whatever, find your bliss. It's not what I'm into. But I just don't think that that is the driving force behind this. They have such a mainstream appeal that I think that that mainstream appeal is there no matter what Ed and Lorraine's character names are and I think it just it does the whole movie a disservice <laughs> because it is so good and it's so lovingly crafted and Vera Famalja and Patrick Wilson are actors who don't treat horror movies like they're something less than right like you get a hundred percent out of them like you would on any other project you've ever seen them in and that's like I respect that a lot about them that like they're willing to act they're willing to breathe life and actual life into these characters in a genre that that doesn't happen all the time. 
for various reasons, right? Like not every horror movie is something that actors can really sink their teeth into, right? Like the guy, like Nick Castle can only do so much as Michael Myers, right? Really sinking their teeth and making the people feel real and full and like actually actualized people makes all the crazy paranormal stuff that goes on around them feel more real. It like really does a good job of grounding that movie into feeling something that is scary. Where I feel like if they if they are not grounded in reality, like if they themselves aren't grounded in that, like they are characters who are consistent throughout the series and throughout the world, then the outlandish things that happen to them, it's a very delicate balance where it could spin out of control. And both The Conjuring and The Conjuring 2 have really nailed that aspect of making supernatural horror movies which is why they're just beloved in that way right so now you know how i feel about the movie we've talked about the case we're gonna have to get back into the the lawsuits because like there's just so much going on in these lawsuits so the original lawsuit was filed by a new line cinema producer who produced the first one saying that Warner Brothers boxed him out of sequels and spinoffs. Almost a year later, we get Gerard Brittle, who wrote Demonologist, who said, hey, New Line Cinema, I have the life rights. You don't have the life rights. I have the life rights. And so then they're duking that out. So, I mean, these lawsuits were filed in 2014, so they span most of the the life of this series, right? Like, we don't get, like, they don't get settled until late 2017. In late 2017, Warner Brothers comes to a settlement with Gerard Brittle. He claims that it was a mistake filing the lawsuit and that New Line Cinema wasn't liable and they did nothing wrong. And he's saying he wasn't in control of the lawsuit. He said the person he was in behind the scenes in the action with is the same one who emailed studio executives in 2013 claiming the warrants were hiding Ed's decade-long affair with a woman named Judith Penny that began when she was 15 years old. And so that is the producer Tony DeRosa Grunt. This settlement comes out on the same day as The Hollywood Reporter dropping a huge chunk of reporting about allegations against Ed Warren. So Ed Warren, in the 60s, started having an affair while he was in his mid-30s with a 15-year-old girl. The lawsuit to Grund emailed his bosses at Warner Brothers and like all the bosses at Warner Brothers, that he had gotten a email from a woman who said, hey, saw The Conjuring. That is not what Ed and Lorraine were like. Here is my, my life with Ed Warren. She signs a sworn declaration to be submitted into court. And then there is also recorded evidence that The Hollywood Reporter listens to from her. We can't find any evidence, the Hollywood Reporter can't, anybody who's looked into this has can't find any evidence that Warner Brothers did anything 
to look into that accusation. And so we're going to have to like have a little like stop moment here and like just have a little second to talk about Warner Brothers. Seen this happen now several times with not just allegations of sexual misconduct like this, but with allegations of sexism, of career threatening, of racism. We saw all of that on the Justice League set. People tried to run the warning up about Joss Wheaton. They tried to run the warning up about Jeff Johns. Jeff Johns still works at DC and is still working at WB. Uh, apparently, Tony DeRosa Grunt was trying to run up the Warner Brothers flagpole. Hey, this is happening. This probably isn't good for our horror movies that are based on how great and loving the couple behind them is. To be fair to Lorraine, Lorraine Warren's attorney, Garrett Barkin, says the family has no knowledge of the alleged conduct and his client, now 90, is in declining health and unable to make a response to the allegations. The lawyer also tells The Hollywood Reporter that Judy and Tony Spira, the Warren's daughter and son-in-law, never saw any of the alleged conduct during the decades they spent with Ed, Lorraine, and Penny. The Warrens opened their home to Ms. Penny when she was 18 and had nowhere else to live following a childhood of neglect. During much of their career, Ed and Lorraine were on the road working on cases, giving lectures, and Ms. Penny lived at and watched the house. They also said she had a long-term boyfriend for much of that time who she eventually married, and the couple spent holidays with their family. The Spears believe Penny is now being manipulated. She alleges that when she was 15 years old, he was a bus driver in the city of Monroe, Connecticut. She was a student in high school. She rode on his bus. She said in a legal declaration that she gave in November 2014 that she moved into the Warrens' house by 1963. For the next 40 years, she had a sexual relationship with Ed with Lorraine's knowledge. Now, I don't care, like, if Lorraine knew. That's not the part of it we should be focusing on. The part of it which we should be focusing on is a 15-year girl having sex with a man twice her age. She says she stayed in a bedroom directly opposite the married couple at one point, but she eventually moved into an apartment built for her above the home. One night, he'd sleep downstairs, and one night, he'd sleep upstairs, she said on a recording. Even in 1963, that was gonna, wasn't was going to go unnoticed. So someone reported to the police that she had moved in, and she was arrested because she was having a relationship with a married man. And she ended up having to spend a night in prison, in jail, because the police were trying to get her to sign an affidavit and admit that she was having the affair. She refused to. She was then sentenced by the court to a delinquent youth office for the next month. According to her, Ed picked her up from school, took her to the meeting, and then picked her up every day. She says that she was presented as a niece or a poor girl who they had taken out of charity to many people as a cover. That's how the Warrens introduced her in their life. 
And in May 1978, in her 30s, she became pregnant with Ed's child. She said, again, in the declaration that Lorraine persuaded her to have an abortion because the birth of a child would become public and any scandal like that would ruin the business. The Hollywood Reporter also has a recording of Miss Penny where she tearfully says, they wanted me to tell everyone that someone had come into my apartment and raped me and I wouldn't do that. I was so scared. I didn't know what to do, but I had an abortion. The night they picked me up from the hospital, after having it, they went out and lectured and left me alone. It's hard to see that, like, the Hollywood reporter could find this much information, but that Warner Brothers didn't seem interested in doing any kind of investigation to find this information. And then this is the thing that, like, really blows my mind about the whole thing is that the Hollywood Reporter then, like, digs into the deal that Lorraine Warren made with New Line Cinema. And the deal with New Line Cinema for her to be consulted or model for The Conjuring included not normal restrictions for a contract of that kind and those unusual restrictions were the film quote the film could not show her or her husband engaging in crimes including sex with minors child pornography prostitution or sexual assault neither the husband nor wife could be depicted as participating in an extramarital sexual relationship so like the hollywood reporter was like hmm, that's weird so they run it up to a talent attorney who has written these kind of contracts all the time. And that attorney, whose name is Jill Smith, said she has never seen specific language barring such depictions. She says individuals selling rights to their stories sometimes have restricted portraits and like deals. And the core quote is, I have done deals in which preventing descriptions of certain specific types of odious behavior which are not relevant to the underlying story and in which the, typically the person is not known to have participated. It's just weird that, like, this didn't get any coverage. No one in the horror community at all talked about it. And, I mean, I guess that's par for the course for us. Like, we don't talk about the allegations against Eli Roth. We just don't talk about, like, the allegations against shitty people in our community. If I didn't have such an ethical problem with the concept of the third movie, these allegations have colored... This is really the thing that has colored how I feel about this movie series as a whole. And, like, when I'm watching the movies and I'm thinking about things from the movies or elements of the movies like I can appreciate as a horror fan like how well made and loving and I like watching them they're enjoyable to watch but then I have to think about like oh yeah the people who were it was inspired behind weren't great I want to end this part and all the whole talking about the conjuring too and these allegations with a quote from Judith Penny herself. As I'm older now, I can't fathom why 
Lorraine let me stay there, she said in an October recording. Lots of times I think about why did I do this? Why did I screw my life up like this? Sometimes I get angry thinking about it. Thinking about how much was taken away from me. So that's going to do it for this episode of Is It Halloween Yet? So, good night, ghouls, ghosts, and goblins. Sleep or don't. Thank you.